we'll see what we can do on that front. Well, we're going to finish out the series that we began two weeks ago, entitled The Reason for the Season, as we've been thinking about this Christmas period and what it is that is good news about the Christmas season. And we're going to wrap it up today by looking at Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. And we're going to be in verses 67 to 79. Luke chapter 1 from verse 67 through to verse 79. I won't give too much introduction because I'll save that for the beginning of the message. But for now, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. Um, As usual, if you would stand with me as we read this portion of God's Word. Luke chapter 1, from verse 67 to 79. Once again, brothers and sisters, these are God's words. Oh, and as usual, I will read the odd-numbered verses. You read the even ones, and we'll pick it up that way. Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 79. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from our enemies, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness, in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Pray that God will bless that reading of his word and grant us understanding. Join with me as we pray, ask for the Spirit's help, and we jump into God's word one more time. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. We pray that as we take a few moments to think about the good news of Jesus' kingship and what it means for us, that our eyes would be drawn from this world to heaven, that we would rejoice in what Jesus has done for us and what he is doing for us even now. And Father, as we pray, we pray for all the churches in the valley who have, in one way or another, commemorated this season. Pray that their witness will be fruitful, that your people would be strengthened, that those who don't know you will come to know you, and that in all these things, Jesus would receive the glory. May that be the case even now as we open up your word. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, please be seated. Well, once again, a Merry Christmas to you. I hope that your Christmas celebrations went well yesterday, regardless of what form they took. 
as we come to this season every year, I wonder what comes to mind for you as you think about Christmas. Is it the overweight guy in a red suit dispensing gifts and this very mad international dash powered by reindeers? For those of us of a certain age, is it Mariah Carey and that horrendous earworm of a song that they foist on us every year like we care? Um, Kids, is it the gifts that we're going to receive this year? What new stuff is coming? I'll be honest, that's one of my favorite parts of Christmas, and I'm 31. Um, Interesting about that last one, gifts. Anybody know why it is that we give and exchange gifts at Christmas time? Have you ever thought about why we do that? Well, as far as, far as we know, the tradition actually comes from the three wise men, allegedly. They weren't three, but for now, we'll just say the three wise men. The three wise men that we read about in Matthew's gospel. As they come to the Savior and they bring these gifts, that became part of the practice of Christmas that people would give and exchange gifts. Giving gifts is a wonderful thing. In fact, our God himself is characterized as the gift giver. So James chapter 1 verse 17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Our God himself is a giver. And for the last few weeks, we've been thinking about God's greatest gift to us, his son, Jesus Christ. He was the first gift that was given on that Christmas morning. He was given to save his people from their sins. We read it last week, Matthew 1.21. In fact, we read it this afternoon. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been thinking about this gift of Jesus. And what we've done is, for this Christmas period, we've taken a leaf out of the historic church's book, as it were, as we've been thinking about Jesus as our prophet, our priest, and our king. So far, we've looked at the fact that Jesus is our prophet, that he reveals the will of God to us. He opens our minds so that we can understand that will. We've seen that last week, Jesus is our priest that he offered himself to God on our behalf, and that he intercedes for us before his Father. If you missed any of those messages, they're up on our YouTube channel. I'd highly recommend catching up. Both of those are pretty amazing gifts. The the knowledge of God on one hand and the forgiveness of sins on the other hand. Both amazing gifts. And we would be so satisfied if that was all that Jesus is to us. But there's one more amazing gift that's worth thinking about. We've seen him as a prophet. We've seen him as a priest. But the Bible also tells us that Jesus is a king. That's the gift gift I want to spend some time this afternoon thinking about. The gift of Jesus as the gracious sovereign. I've titled our message this afternoon, the gift of a gracious sovereign. God gave us a king. Today I want to draw attention to four ways in which Jesus' kingship is a gracious gift to us. We're in Luke chapter 1. This is the other birth narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing about Luke 1 is Luke doesn't start with just Jesus. He actually starts with, oh, he starts with Jesus. He then goes into John the Baptist's birth narrative and then picks it up in chapter 2 with the birth of Jesus. 
And so here we are in Luke chapter 1, and we are in the section that's dealing with John the Baptist, the man who would be the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. John's dad was named Zechariah. He was a priest in the temple. Both he and his wife were well past the age for having kids. And then, I'm kind of summarizing Luke chapter 1 here, then he receives a word from an angel of the Lord that his wife is going to have a son who will be named John. Zechariah is a somewhat logical man. He hears something like that at his time of life, and he says, nah, no good, no good. Whatever you're saying, that, that doesn't work. That can't happen. Now, never mind that it's an angel of the Lord who's speaking to him. Uh, never mind that they generally don't play. No, he's not buying it. And for his insistence that this can't happen, the angel strikes him dumb. Like, actually dumb. He can't speak. Well, the time comes. The baby's here. When the baby is born, they ask Zachariah what his name should be. Remember, he still can't talk, so the text tells us he grabs a tablet and he writes out the name John. And everyone's like, why John? Like, you don't have anybody in your family named John. Why would you call him John? And then at that moment, he's able to speak. And that's where we pick up in Luke chapter 1. And that, and that brings us to our text this afternoon. You see, in a few words, Zechariah is praising God for his covenant promises and sending the king who was promised long ago. You see, as you read the Bible, there's a promise of a king and a kingdom. That, that promise starts its way all the way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 1. And that promise goes, as it were, unfulfilled. At points, it feels like we're really close, and then we're not. It feels like we're almost there, and then we're not. But in this song of Zacharias, he praises God because God had finally sent the king who was promised long ago. Well, this afternoon, I want, like I said, I want to look at four glorious truths about Jesus' kingship, which make for good news this Christmas. Four glorious truths. I don't plan on being before you long, so allow me to get straight to work. First of all, Jesus is the king who liberates his people. Point number one, Jesus is the king who liberates his people, verse 68. So look at verse 68 with me, if you will, please. Luke says, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and provided redemption for his people. If you are the Bible-marking type, you might want to circle that word or underline that word, redemption. Redemption is one of those classic churchy words. Those of you who've been around Redeemer long are probably laughing internally because you know my general disdain for churchy words that we don't define. Well, this is actually a great word, so let's for a moment actually define it. When you read the Bible, redemption is a word that carries two different ideas together. It's an Old Testament picture and a New Testament picture. Follow me here. The Old Testament picture of redemption relates to the Exodus. It relates to this moment when God brought the children of Israel, out, Israel excuse me, out of Egypt. And time and time and time again, God describes that event of delivering his people as redemption. So that's the Old Testament picture behind this language of redemption. But the New Testament picture, the one that most New Testament speakers would have been familiar with, had to do with the slave market. It was the, had to do with the buying of a slave with the purpose of ensuring their freedom. 
So it wasn't enough that you, okay, you bought this slave. When you redeemed the slave, you paid the price for them, and then you released them. Did you catch what both of those definitions, the Old Testament and the New Testament ones, have in common? Slave, well done, slavery. Both of them have in common people in bondage who are made free through the action of another. Redemption, the Bible would have us to understand this, slaves of sin being liberated from their bondage. It's people who are enslaved being made free. And so when Zechariah in our text here says that God is worthy of praise because he's provided redemption for his people, he sees that God's promises for his people first and foremost concern their freedom from sin. I mean, we might want to define what sin is then. Uh, when you read the Bible, the Bible in its clearest definition of what sin is, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says that sin is lawlessness. Sin is the breaking of God's law. And oftentimes we think of sin and we think it's, okay, if I do something bad, that's a sin. But the Bible actually expands the definition of sin to more than just what you do. See, sin is the breaking of God's law, whether it's in what you think, in what you say, or what you do. In fact, when Jesus talked about sin, he, he made it clear that it goes beyond just doing bad things. So I told you we're planning on starting Matthew um, next year, Lord willing. When we get to chapter 5, you're going to see Jesus say, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. And when he says that, he's not saying you, now you can. What he's saying is that's what the law says. But listen, I'm taking it a step further. If you lost after somebody in your heart, you've committed adultery with them. Well, how about murder? He says, listen, you've heard it said that you should not murder. And indeed it was said. God said that. But Jesus says, listen, if you're angry with your brother or your sister without due reason, that's as good as murdering them. You see, sin is not just what we do. It's what we think and what we say and what we do. It's that really everything we do outside of Christ is sin. And the Bible makes us to understand that sin enslaves those who commit it. So in John chapter 8, Jesus would say that everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Think about that. Uh, we live in a culture that will tell you that, you know what, doing what you want is true freedom. But can I pause and say that it's funny that our culture says that. And yet our culture has never been more enslaved than it is now. Look at the number of addictions that reign rampant through our culture. You may think, okay, well, I don't have an addiction problem. That doesn't apply to me. Okay, maybe it doesn't. But let's, for a moment, talk about some of the things that we give ourselves to and don't even think twice about it. I looked up the figures this week as I was putting this message together. Did you know that $3.7 billion is spent every year on entertainment in this country? Again, I'm not anti-entertainment. I watch TV. I watch sports. I was watching sports this afternoon. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I'm going to go home and watch my football team for back home. Like, entertainment's not the problem. But then you start to look at the numbers, and it gets even more concerning. What's it? The average American spends 80 hours a week watching television. Think about that. If you're asleep for... Okay, let's use myself. I have terrible sleep. So... I sleep about six, seven hours a night. 
So that's what, 84? You get how many in a week? 168. Okay, excluding work. Well, before, you had to be yet to watch a TV to watch TV. Now you can watch TV anywhere. You think, okay, Kofi, is that a form of slavery? It might be. I'm not saying it is, but it might be. Our culture has never been more enslaved than ever before. But here's the good news. Jesus makes us to understand that, yes, you might be a slave to sin, but here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be a slave to sin. The same Jesus who said that everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin also said this in the same paragraph, John 8, 32. He said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus, my friends, is the king who liberates every one of his people. As we hear the gospel and we believe it, we are rescued from the evil one and his bondage. And so Zechariah begins and he says, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. I don't know about you, but I'm with Zechariah. That is something worth singing and shouting about, amen? But uh, can I share with you a second truth about Jesus' kingship that makes for good news? Not only is Jesus the king who liberates his people, secondly, Jesus is the king who conquers for his people. Verses 69 to 75. He's the king who conquers for his people. So again, verses 69 to 75, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation for our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. That's kind of a mouthful, so let's break that down some a little bit. Uh, note with me, first of all, this language of the horn in verse 69. The, the horn in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, it's a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of the ability to attack. It's interesting that Zacharias says that God had raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. That's how we know that whoever he's singing about isn't his son. Remember, he's a priest. He's from the tribe of Levi. And so was his son. But Jesus comes from the house of David. He's from that house. Why would Zechariah be singing about someone else when his own son is in his arms? Uh, you know, I, I just about remember when Gareth was born. I really wasn't thinking about anybody other's kids in the moment when I'm holding my son. I really wasn't. I wasn't thinking about much of anyone at that point. Well, actually, I was thinking about Laura because she was still being looked after. But in general, you don't start thinking of somebody else's kids when you're holding your firstborn. But you see, John, excuse me, Zachariah, excuse me, is a priest. He knows his Bible. And so knowing that he has the son who's going to be the forerunner of Jesus, Jesus is as good as here. And so since the forerunner was here, the main event wasn't too far behind. In fact, did you catch that he noted that the prophets had talked about this horn long before he came? Did you catch that? He says that 
verse 70, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Jump down to verse 72, he says, he has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. Both in prophecy and in covenant, God had said that one would come who would ultimately, as verse 71 says, bring salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. So God makes a covenant with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. And in that covenant, we learn that this one who's coming will be a Jew. In the covenant with David, we learn that this one who's coming will be a king. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, God says this, I'm going to send a seed and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. As for prophecies, well, we need a whole sermon just to get through all of them. Allow me to give you the highlights of the highlights, as it were. Where Warren Wiersbe puts it so well, he says, quote, God had promised that the Savior would be a Jew, Genesis 12. From the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. From the family of David, 2 Samuel 7. Born in David's city, Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. End quote. All these prophecies and all of these covenants prophesied that a person would come who would bring salvation from the enemies of God's people and from the hand of all of those who hate them. Now, I would argue in context, and this is a discussion for another time, that Zechariah is indeed speaking about the actual nation of Israel and that he's speaking about the rest of the Bible's teaching regarding God's future plans for that nation. Romans chapter 11, if you're interested in hearing more. But I think there's also another dimension to what Zechariah sings here. You see, as we read the Bible, the Bible tells us that we all have an enemy. I mean, if you were born into this world, you maybe didn't realize it, but you have at least, you may say, everyone likes me. I have no enemies. Now you've got at least one. That enemy is called the devil. The enemy hates the people of God. In fact, he's hated them since the Garden of Eden. Remember Genesis 3.15 that I just quoted? I will, God said, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The adversary has had it out for God's people from the very beginning. That's why if you've noticed, you read the Old Testament, it seems like everybody hates the nation of Israel, and you can't figure out why they hate the nation of Israel. They just do. People after people, nation after nation comes after the Israelites. You transition into the New Testament, and here comes Jesus, and guess what? Everyone hates him too. In fact, we didn't read it, but Matthew chapter 2, 16 to 18, what's the first thing that happens after his parents get out of town, after the angel tells them to leave? Slaughter of the innocents. Herod is so angry. He says, you know what? I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill all the kids that come with him. Jesus goes to glory. And who does he go after next? The church. Our adversary hates the people of God. But here's the thing. He might try to destroy the people of God. The enemy might try, but he'll never succeed. That's why Jesus could say, Luke 10, 18, I watch Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It's like, done deal, I'm not worried about him. Paul could say, Colossians 2, 15, that Jesus triumphed over the powers of darkness in the cross. That's why the author to the Hebrews could say, Hebrews 2, 14, that Jesus became a man and died so that he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil. 
Jesus is the horn spoken of here who scatters the enemies of God's people and ensures that they'll never be beaten. The enemy might try, but praise God, he will never succeed. And what's the result? Well, verse 72. Zechariah says, he has dealt mercifully with us, with our ancestors, excuse me, and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. The king who conquers doesn't just conquer his enemy, the devil. Here's the beautiful thing. The Bible makes us to understand that he conquers those who would not serve him and that through the work of his spirit, he brings rebel hearts to submit to his lordship. And that's why Christmas is good news. Because if you're sitting here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, not only has he conquered the power of the enemy, he's conquered the power of sin for you. He is the king who conquers for his people. But why is Christmas good news? Well, it's good news because Jesus is the king who liberates his people. He's the king who conquers for his people. Can I give you a third reason why Christmas is good news? Jesus is the king who forgives the sins of his people. He's the king who forgives the sins of his people. Verses 76 and 77. Zechariah goes on and he says, And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. For a moment, I need to talk about sin again. I know we just talked about that, but allow me to come back there for just a moment. Our culture preaches to us that sin is not that big a deal. By the way, can we get rid of that language in 2022? It's not that big a deal. After all, our culture tells us nobody's perfect, which is true. So what does it matter if you sin? I think about this. Uh, I, like I said, I watch TV. I'm not opposed to watching TV, and I watch some dramas on TV. It's interesting to note the change in language and the change in behavior on TV. If you've watched TV as long as I have, which is way too long, <laughs> you probably know this. Once upon a time, characters had a moral compass. There were things that they would, they, if they saw it happen, they'd be like, no, 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 that's not right. And they tried to do something about it. Now you watch TV and you see certain shows and certain behaviors just considered normal. Once I, I'm old enough to remember watching TV and a husband cheating on his wife or vice versa was considered completely wrong. It was the worst thing ever. Now it's just considered the norm. There's some TV shows I had to stop watching because they just treat that like it's normal. Our culture basically says sin is not that big a deal. We don't need to worry about that. But God says otherwise when you read his word. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20, God says the soul that sins will die. Not they might, not I might think about it, not it's on the table. No, he says the soul that sins will die. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. You work for sin, and what you're going to collect at the end of it is death. Beloved, either sin is a big deal, the biggest of big deals. Either God means what he says, 
and sin is punishable by death. He told that to our first parents, and he says that consistently through his word, or he doesn't. And if it if it does, or he doesn't, if he doesn't mean what he says, then that means that we shouldn't listen to anything he says about anything. Well, let's pause for a moment. If sin is the breaking of God's law on any level, and God who gives the law says that sinners will die, and yet we also read this Bible and it tells us that God is loving and he's merciful and he's gracious, but he's also truthful, righteous, and just, what does that mean for us? I know we just celebrated Christmas, but can I move you along to Good Friday for a moment? Uh, This is where Jesus comes in. You see, Jesus pays the price necessary for your redemption. We talked about this last week with Jesus as a priest. In fact, it's better to say that Jesus doesn't pay the price for our sins. Jesus is the price necessary for your redemption. He stepped in and he said, Father God, I I know what they owe you. They broke the law. I know they did. But listen, charge it to me. Put it to my account. He enters into our world. He lives the life of obedience, perfect, perpetual, exact obedience that we were supposed to live. He lives that life for us. And then he goes to the cross and he suffers the penalty that we deserve because of our disobedience. He does all of that in the place of all those who will turn from their sin and turn to him in faith. And again, I'm with Zachariah. I think that's praiseworthy in just about every sense you can use that word. But the good news doesn't end there. Yes, Jesus is the king who liberates his people. Yes, he is the king who conquers his people. Yes, conquers for his people, excuse me. Yes, he is the king who forgives the sins of his people. But finally, Jesus is the king who brings light to his people. Jesus is the king who brings light to his people, verses 78 and 79. Zechariah will conclude and say, Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That language of the dawning on high and shining on those who live in darkness, it's really worth noting. Another way that the Bible speaks about the effects of sin on our minds is that it's like darkness. So Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't believe to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Ephesians 4.18, Paul can say that those who are still in their sinful nature, that they are darkened in their understanding. Again, isn't it kind of ironic that we live in an age where people talk about being enlightened more than ever? We think we are the smartest generation in the history of mankind. I mean, there's a degree to which you can't blame people. I mean, you look at some of the advancements we've made in technology, in medicine, in so many areas, you can, see, you can forgive people for thinking that. I mean, we're the generation that we like to... Sp- Flaunt, just how much smarter we are than those who came before us. Not even that far ago, uh, just the other, if I could pause for a moment. Just this last week, I'm sitting at home. Gareth's asleep during his nap. 
I was well ahead of my sermon. I thought, you know what, I'm going to take an afternoon off. Normally I work during the afternoons when he's asleep. So I decided I'm going to watch a film from when I grew up. I was born in 1990. I'm not that old. So I turn on Netflix and I start scrolling and I find it. And before it starts, they put up this little warning. Some of you have maybe seen this. Some of the, if you don't believe me, go check it. They put this little warning up saying, we hope you enjoy this film. Just know that some of the humor is not up to today's rigorous social standards, and we wouldn't recommend it. It was only 30 years ago. Actually, less than that. This film was made in the early 2000s. And yet we're flaunting, oh, we're so much more enlightened. Oh, we wouldn't make that joke today. <laughs> we like to flaunt in our day and age just how more enlightened we are. And yet, I put it to you, our society has never been more dark than, ever, than it is today. Again, I, I keep going back to it because I still just don't understand it. Make it make sense to me. The president of this nation needs to appoint an assistant health secretary. It's a good post. Kind of need someone to think about that. Appoints a doctor. Okay, it makes sense. You probably want a doctor in that post. But proceeds to appoint a doctor who was a man and then decided one day, I don't want to be a man anymore. So I'm going to be a woman. And we're supposed to get our national health advice from that person. Make it make sense to me. Make it make sense to me that a celebrity in a city like Chicago would decide to stage their own getting beaten up in a city like Chicago, which I hear has more cameras than London, actually. And then say, yeah, I got beaten up and oh, it's a hate crime and all the rest of it. And then it comes out and people still defend it. Make, again, make it make sense to me. Never has our society been more dark. We can't tell who's a man and who's a woman anymore. And yet we claim we're so enlightened. I put it to you that, and it's not that I think our society is more evil than any other society. We've simply found more ways to manifest the darkness that all of us have. And yet here's the good news. In the person of Jesus Christ, the light of God has shone powerfully into the darkness of this world. That's why John could say in John chapter 1 that the light shined in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. That's why Jesus could say in John chapter 8 verse 12 that I am the light of the world. Sorry, movement in the 17th century that said that you were the enlightenment. No, you weren't. Jesus is the enlightenment. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Christmas tends to be at the darkest time of the year. Have you ever wondered about that? Just recently hit me. Christmas tends to be at the darkest time of the year. And I think there's a picture. That's a picture all by itself, isn't it? That just when it's darkest, we celebrate the coming of the light of the world into this world. I told you I didn't plan on being before you long. I, I, I put it to you that Jesus' kingship is glorious because it brings light to those who live in darkness. Isn't it one of the Christmas songs we sing, He Who Is Mighty, doesn't it start off with that? Oh, the mercy our God has shown to those who live in death's shadow. 
what a wonderful thing it is as the people of God to know that the darkness and the sin that pervades this world has been broken once and for all through the coming of Christ. And so even for us who are believers, we have the wonderful joy of walking in the light of who Christ is. Yes, we don't always do it well. Yes, we're not always consistent with that. But here's the good news. Even in our moments of weakness, even in the moments of failure, he takes care of that for us. He is our righteousness. And that's why Jesus coming into this world is good news, not just for Christmas. Uh, I don't know if you guys had this advertising campaign here. We had it in the UK. It's not just for Christmas, it's for life. Yeah, okay, you guys had that here too. Perfect. Well, that's the good news about the gospel. The gospel is not just for Christmas and Easter. It's not just for when you become a Christian. It's for all of life. And that's the good news of Jesus' kingship for us. And Father, we are so grateful that you did give us this gracious sovereign. One who liberates us from the power of darkness. One who conquers the enemy that we were unable to conquer. One who forgives our sins freely. And one who enlightens us, who brings light to his people. Father, may we rejoice in that light, not just today, not just on a few holidays scattered through the year, but every day. May we find our promised rest in him. We ask these things in Jesus' name.